evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event. I'm Jonathan Birch. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the LSE, and I'm going to die. So are you. We're all mortal beings. But what can we learn about ourselves by facing up to our own mortality? Are there ways of dying well and dying badly? And what does the question of how to die have to do with the question of how to live? These are our questions for this edition of the Philosopher's Book Club, where our focus will be on the death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy, one of my favorite books. And it's a real pleasure to be joined by two panelists for whom it's also one of their favorite books, Olga Sobolev and Thomas Karshan. Unlike me, Thomas and Olga are also experts on Russian literature. I'll just begin by very briefly summarizing the book, and then we will zoom in to a passage that's been picked out for us by Thomas. It's fair to say that the death of Ivan Ilyich is a sad book. It begins with Ivan Ilyich having just died, and his colleagues in the Court of Justice hear the news of his death, and they're shocked by it. But within moments, their thoughts turn to jostling for position and who might be promoted as a result of this and who might gain from it. We then go to Ivan Ilyich's wake, where his friends, well, they want to do, do what decorum requires, but they also want to get out as quickly as they can and get back to playing card games. The Tolstoy then takes us back to review Ivan Ilyich's life, a short life. He dies in his 40s, but a life that, as Tolstoy repeatedly says, has been cheerful, pleasant, decorous. It's a life where Ivan Ilyich has done exactly what he thinks society requires. He's pursued a fairly unexceptional but good career in the law. He's found it absorbing. He's loved the sense of power that it gives him. But from the way Tolstoy describes it, this life is in some sense empty. There's something missing from it. And then just at the moment when it seems like it's reached the height of cheerfulness, pleasantness, and decorum, as Ivan Ilyich is kitting out a new house, he falls and bangs his side on the handle of a window frame and gets lightly bruised. It's never quite clear if this is really the start of his illness or not, but he th it's what he thinks is the start of his illness. From that moment, he seems to be in this slow decline. We're never sure exactly what he's got, He's not sure about it either. All the doctors say different things. What's clear is that he seems to be getting worse and worse and starts to realize that maybe there's no way out and maybe he has to face up to his own mortality and the end of his life coming sooner than he might have expected. And that's about the point where we get to Thomas's chosen passage, which is at the start of chapter six. So Thomas, do you want to read out the, the passage you want to talk about? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Jonathan, the Forum of for Philosophy, for having me. Um, as Jonathan said, um, this is the most wonderful novella, and it's been a good thing to be prompted to reread it. I'm going to read this passage at the beginning of uh, chapter six, which I think is one of the core cool passages of the book. Ivan Ilyich could see that he was dying, and he was in constant despair. In the depths of his soul, Ivan Ilyich knew he was dying, but... Not only could he not get used to the idea, he didn't understand it, couldn't understand it at all. All his life, the syllogism he had learned from Kizaveta's logic, Julius Caesar is a man, 
men are mortal, therefore Caesar is mortal, had always seemed to him to be true, only uh, when it applied to Caesar, certainly not to him. There was Caesar the man, and man in general. It was fair enough for them. But he wasn't Caesar the man. He wasn't man in general. He had always been a special being, totally different from all others. He had been Vanya with his mama and his papa, with Vitya and Volodya, with his toys and the carriage driver, then little Katya, with all the delights, sorrows, and rapture of childhood, boyhood, and youth. Did Caesar have anything to do with the smell of that little striped leather ball that Vanya had loved so much? Was it Caesar who had kissed his mother's hand like that? And was it for Caesar that the silken folds of his mother's dress had rustled the way they did? Was he the one who had rebelled at law school over the provision of snacks? Had Caesar been in love like him? Could Caesar chair a session like him? Yes, Caesar is mortal, and it's all right for him to die, but not me, Vanya, Ivan Ilyich, with all my thoughts and feelings. It's different for me. It can't be me having to die. That would be too horrible. So, um, I've chosen this passage because it seems to me to get to the heart of what makes the death of Ivan Ilyich really a true work of art and one that teaches, but doesn't teach by telling you anything simple. The author I work on a lot, Nabokov, said that there was always a preacher in Tolstoy who threatened to destroy the artist. But I think the artist is fully in control in this great novella. And it's for that reason that it teaches us more profoundly about what it feels like to be about to die than Tolstoy does, for example, in A Confession, which is a wonderful, wonderful piece of writing shortly before Ivanovich. I recommend it to anyone uh, who's confronting the terror of death. But this is different. This is a novel and I want to say why. First off, he starts by contrasting two different kinds of knowledge. On the one hand, uh, in the depths of his soul, he knows he's dying, but he couldn't get used to it. He didn't understand it. And this is immediately something that concerns Tolstoy all through his thought. There are things that reason knows, and there are things that the soul knows, or that the depths of the body know. And they are entirely different. And reason here is deceptive. Reason cannot digest, cannot digest the thought of death. Fortunately for Ivan Ilyich, there is some animal consciousness deep in him, which is bringing him towards the recognition of death that he needs to get to. And that theme of the falseness of reason immediately gets picked up with this fascinating, profound joke, really. In, in a confession, Tolstoy says that when we first recognize the absurdity of life and the absurdity of death bursting into life, we feel as if, it's, as if some kind of God who does and doesn't exist is playing a joke on us. And this is a horrible joke. Julius Caesar is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caesar is mortal but I am not Caesar, therefore I'll not die. I mean, it's absurd and it's childlike. And as it happens, the author I've worked on a lot, Nabokov, picked up on this. And I only realized this when I read it a few days ago. In his 1962 novel, Pale Fire, the poet says, a syllogism, other men die, but I am not another, therefore I'll not die. And like all good paradoxes, on the one hand, it's absurd and on the other hand, it points to a very deep truth. We think death is for other people. And we think that all these general truths that we can offer about the world somehow don't apply to us. 
I think I'll stop there. I've got a couple more points I'd like to come back to about this passage, but I'd like to open up the discussion at that point. Great. Olga, what's your reaction to this passage? First of all, just just, just quickly, I, I also would like to thank Jonathan very much for inviting me because it's uh, it's such a fascinating topic and I immediately jumped on the opportunity because it's absolutely great pleasure. So thank you. I I I I think it it's it's a marvelous passage because precisely because uh, if even we kind of don't think about the general idea of reasoning, if we apply it to ourselves, we never think about dying in, for, in the first person. It always mm. in the third person. It's the death of somebody else rather than my own personal death. So you always think of it that, yes, it's absolutely horrible. It is sometime probably I will be in this position, but not now. Not now and uh, not in the near future. So you never project this experience upon yourself. And in this respect, I think it's, it's an absolutely marvelous piece which shows not only kind of the extent of this kind of distance from death, but also that, well, these people who surround Ivan Ilyich, they're not malicious. They're not bad people at all. But they can't relate to his sufferings. They can't even find the language in themselves to express their sympathies properly because nothing strikes the chord. Nothing resonates in them. So not only they can't find the inner language to express and to share the feelings, they even can't find the language among those offered by social conventions. Hence this absolutely ridiculous and comic scenes where they don't know how many obeisances to perform, whether to perform these obeisances simultaneously with crossing or mm -hmm. separately. They don't have the language even to express these feelings because the distance is absolutely enormous. And I, I find that that was shown to striking clarity in this piece with great kind of simplicity and absolutely kind of great depth and great understanding of the matter. Olga, do you think organized religion is to some extent in the firing line here? Tolstoy very critical of it in the, in the confession written at a similar time. And as you say, you know, there's this sense of all the rituals people perform around death, not really helping, almost being a displacement activity for the real confrontation with their own mortality. Absolutely. Well, actually, this is not only, uh, I must say, Tolstoy's. Uh, everybody knows that Tolstoy had a very peculiar understanding of religion, his own religion, and which has had nothing to do with the orthodox organized religion. And of course, this is reflected here. And uh, that's why, partly, the religious part, like confession and all religious rituals, they don't play any role practically here because this is not important. But this is a wider point because not only Tolstoy had a very peculiar attitude towards religion. I would say, generally speaking, Russian liberal middle class intelligentsia like Ivan Ilyich, they were not religious at all. They were all, I would say, mild atheists because this was typical everybody knew this of course they they went to church because it was necessary when you for christening for wedding for that was a social convention but deep down 
They were not. And to prove this, we can recollect Tolstoy's War and Peace. When Prince Andrei goes to war, his sister, Maria, gives him, well, an icon to kind of to, to take with him. And his response is, okay, I'll take it. It doesn't weigh much. So it doesn't have any meaning to this. I thought there was such an interesting point Olga was making about people not having the language to describe death. Right at the end of this section, section six, Ivan Ilyich himself keeps describing death simply as it in italics, almost like Freud's Das S, the it. It's just what escapes language. And I think that kind of follows on from the paradox that everyone else will die, but I won't die. That death is something that breaches the ordinary ongoingness of social life and embarrasses everyone and is disgusting. It's, the, it's these things all the way through the book. It's embarrassing and it's disgusting. And you have a really strong sense that social life is constructed in order to conceal it. Mm. And even most thoughts exist to conceal it. That's what comes to Ivan Ilyich very shortly after this passage. He thinks, well, you know, surely if I was actually going to die, there would have been some inner voice that would have told me so. And what's that, what's that giving you? Something that's so strong in Tolstoy, which is this feeling he has that actually all of our thinking, it's quite a Buddhist thought, all of our thinking is a defense against death. I think that's a very, very strong thought there. The other thing I wanted to say about this passage is that this paradox, if you keep turning it, it exposes something really important. Other men die, but I'm not another, therefore I'll not die. Julius Caesar dies, man in general dies, but I don't die. Mm. We all want to feel individuals, and Tolstoy has sympathy for that, but the cost of that is a desperate loneliness, actually. That's the other implication of it. What marks everybody else when I look at them is the mortality I can smell in them, the bad taste of it. In order to avoid pinning that on myself, I have to make myself lonely. And it's that loneliness that Tolstoy talks about quite often. In a confession, he says, I experienced this suicidal depression after my brother's death, and I thought, how can I deal with the absurdity of death? How can anyone deal with it? Once you see it, how can you go on living? And he says, for some people, number one, they're just ignorant. They haven't noticed it. They're young or they're old or they're foolish. For some people, they just ignore it all their lives through Epicureanism, through living a life of delight. Some people, the strong, have the strength to commit suicide. And a fourth group know it, but are too weak to follow through. Even people he admires like Schopenhauer. But then he says, then I realized that this was all wrong and that reason was lying to me and I had to go deeper and embrace the instinct for life and for death that I find in the common people and the peasants and join them. And that is a reunion for Tolstoy with the ordinary ongoing life of man. He says, you cannot, you cannot reconcile yourself to death and you cannot live a true life unless you see your life as part of the whole life of mankind. So that the solution to death is also a solution to loneliness. And I think that's implicit here as well. Yeah, so I was going to bring up later Gerasim and Illich's servant, the one, the one character in the book who escapes the critique of Russian middle class life and who is just portrayed as someone who gets it, who, who is actually in contact with the realities of life and death rather than hiding from them. And it's tied into that idea, isn't it, that Tolstoy thinks peasants know how to live, basically. He thinks his own, his own class and the middle class have lost their grip on how to live because they're not in contact with the realities of life and death. But the peasant class 
gets it. And at this point, may I bring in, because long before his major works, Tolstoy writes a very short story called Three Deaths, 1959. It's a very important piece in connection to Ivan Ilyich. Because in this little story, he talks about three different deaths. The first one is the death of a landlady, which is very similar to the one of Ivan Ilyich. But Ivan Ilyich understands something at the end. He gets the right thing. And well, mm. this, is my, the, the, this is the key point of my passage. So I won't talk about this at this point. But she doesn't. So she doesn't understand anything. The second death is the death of a peasant, which is very similar to Gerasim in the in the story and this natural death. So no fear of death because, well, the person naturally leaves this world. But most interesting is the third death. The third death is the death of an oak tree. This oak tree is cut down in order so that the cross can be made to put at the grave of the peasant. And when this tree is being in the process of cut down, the tree is almost happy because the tree feels that it will serve later for something and the tree will liberate, will empty the space and the light for other trees. So by dying, it promotes life of others. And in this respect, it's a very important point which resonates in, in Ivan Ilyich practically directly. So which shows that there was this continuity of thought. So Thomas, your passage was from chapter six. And Olga, you've picked a passage that is further along, I suppose, further along Ivan Ilyich's descent towards death. In fact, quite close to the end for him. Do you want to tell us about the, the context of that passage and read it to us? I will go directly into reading. This occurred at the end of the third day. Two hours before his death, just then his schoolboy son had crept softly in and gone up to the bedside. The dying man was still screaming desperately and waving his arms. His hand fell on the boy's head, and the boy caught it, pressed it to his lips, and began to cry. At that very moment, Ivan Ilyich fell through and caught sight of the light. And it was revealed to him that though his life had not been what it should have been, this could still be rectified. He asked himself, what is the right thing? And grew still listening. Then he felt that someone was kissing his hand. He opened his eyes, looked at his son and felt sorry for him. His wife came up to him and he glanced at her. She was gazing at him open-mouthed with undried tears on her nose and cheek and a despairing look on her face. He felt sorry for her too. Yes, I am making them wretched, he thought. They are sorry, but it will be better for them when I die. He wished to say this, but hadn't the strength to utter it. Besides, why speak? I must act, he thought. With a look at his wife, he indicated his son and said, take him away. Sorry for him. Sorry for you too. He tried to add, forgive me, but said, forgo, and waved his hand, knowing that he whose understanding mattered would understand. So I chose this passage because, well, there are two points that I would like to highlight. The first one is that I feel that in this passage, Tolstoy reveals to us his reflections on how to conquer the fear of death. Because that very moment when Ivan Ilyich rejects his ego and starts thinking about the suffering of others rather than his own sufferings, he immediately found, finds himself, and that happens directly after this passage, he finds himself surrounded by light. 
his fear of death disappears. And more importantly, has no, he has no pain. So as soon as he uh, starts feeling for the others rather than for himself, he immediately finds the right thing to do. And practically throughout this story, he was only, he was absolutely impenetrable for the others. It was as if he was separated from the others by kind of a glass wall, if you wish, because there are two narrative voices in the story. It is narrated from the third person, and it, it, this is the attitude of the others. And also there is a voice from inner voice of Ivan Ilyich from the first person. And these two voices are absolutely separated from each other. And Ivan Ilyich feels that he's completely alone. And he, he says in the story, he felt, he felt very sorry for himself. That's his feeling throughout this story. He wept on account of his helplessness, terrible loneliness, the cruelty of men, the cruelty of God, and the absence of God. So throughout this story, and this is the point you, Jonathan, made that no religion at all, he doesn't feel any connection with the divine. And as soon as he starts thinking of about the others, everything changes. Why? Because, and here I refer to confession with which Thomas mentioned uh, an important piece. For Tolstoy, the only way to conquer the fear of death was to believe in afterlife, because otherwise it's impossible. And believing in afterlife, it's not just believing in afterlife, it's finding the divine inside yourself. And what it means, finding the divine inside yourself, it means that you become a true servant of God. And a true servant of God has to do the work for God, which means to perpetuate the circle of life created by God. That means perpetuate the life of others in supporting God's creation. And as soon as Ivan Ilyich understands this and starts doing this, he immediately realizes that there is no fear, there is no pain. And this is a very, artistically, I mean, it's a fantastic piece because he's separated from other characters completely, but he's surrounded by the so-called meta-characters. He's surrounded by meta-characters he like fear, loneliness, pain, death, to the extent that he physically, physically sees death because it says it, death, would come and stand before him and speak to him. And as soon as he realizes, he finds this world of the divine inside himself, which means he thinks of the others, these characters disappear. In this respect, it's an important piece. Thanks, Olga. I was just thinking that uh, Tolstoy also wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You, didn't he? Oh, yes. Expressing his religious views and perhaps articulating that thought there. Thomas, what was your reaction to this passage? Well, first of all, it's important that this, this happens just when he's waving his arms around and he catches his son's head and the boy takes hold of it and um, he bursts into tears. So we've, we've heard earlier that as Ivan Ilyich looks back at his whole life, he comes to feel that it's all false to him, except for some bright little vision of his early childhood. That's the one uncorrupted part of his memory. Uh, and again, you know, it corresponds really closely to what he said in the confession that he could not accept death. He could not go on with the absurdity of life in the face of death until he realized that it wasn't that all life was wrong, 
just his life <laughs> that he'd been living that was wrong. And he had to accept, simple as two plus two equals four, he said, that everything he'd gone about his life was wrong. But that there was a reminder, a saving reminder of an alternative view of life derivable from his childhood. And at this moment, we go into this voice that comes in occasionally in Ivan Ilyich, which is really the voice of, I think, childhood wisdom. It's very short sentences, and it's a very patient perspective. And at that moment, actually, he's watching over himself, both mother and child to himself. And, you know, I was reminded very much of Tolstoy's description of watching his brother Nikolai die, who he was very close to. And he said everyone else wanted to look away, which, of course, is the point all the way through the story. But he stayed by his bedside and he lived with the agony. And that's what this story does. At the beginning, we see everyone else looking away. It frightens them. And they're delighted to hear that someone else has died in the way that we're all delighted when we read about the death of someone else in the obituaries in the paper. They're delighted to know he dies. And that's because they do deep down know that they're going to die. But here, the whole story stays with him as he dies. And it's nurse-like in that way. There's a compassion. And it's actually compassionate towards all of us. It satirizes all of us as we see ourselves in the hypocrisy and the empty rituals of ordinary life, Mm. but only to confront us with what we need to be confronted by in order to be consoled. I entirely agree. And I also would like to pick up on this marvelous comment that you make about his inner child that is revealed like glimpses of hope throughout this story and how this authentic voice is picked up at the end and because in this passage sorry can't resist because here we have a a very interesting instance of mistranslation a mistranslation the point where he says he wanted to say forgive and said instead said forgo this is in my translation by uh, by louise and alma mod in the russian original he says he wanted to say presti which is indeed forgive but instead said prapusti. Prapusti means let me through, let me pass. You mm. would agree that it is not exactly the same as forgo. And I mm. looked through other translations. They are even worse. The alternatives that I found is, first of all, he wanted to say forgive, but said forget, which is completely out of place. He mm. wanted to say forgive, but said for goodness, which is even worse. He wanted to say forget and said free me, which is probably the best alternative. Mm. But still, I, I can't understand it. For some mysterious reason, all uh, translators try to pick up on this phonetic similarity between prasti yeah. and prapusti and drop the meaning, because Mm -hmm. the meaning of let me through, it is an imperative, so it implies the agency of the subject. Mm -hmm. For the first time in his life, Ivan Ilyich made the right decision and made it himself according to his own principles, not according to social conventions to which he constantly complied and lived his life in accordance with social conventions rather than in accordance with his inner authentic voice. And by making this decision, if you wish, so to speak, making this existential choice to use Sartrean terms, and the stories can be used as a perfect illustration for Sartrean philosophy, he earns this passage to the world of life. So practically, I've done the right thing, let me through. And even more interesting, because in the Russian text, there is no pronoun. It is let through, let pass. You can insert any pronoun. You can, you can say let me pass, or you can say let 
himpas. And this ambiguity is very important for the meaning because let me through to the world of lights, but equally let him, I mean, the word of God, the divine into my heart. So these two processes are simultaneous. So by letting the divine in his heart, he is allowed to pass through to the world of light. So he's picking up this authentic voice of a child, which Thomas so marvelously highlighted. That's a, I mean, that's a beautiful point about the proper Steve, about let it, let it be through, let it through. Um, because forgive, what does it mean? Empty words. What Tolstoy would have thought was just mouth talk. Empty language. Tolstoy was beautifully described as the seer of the flesh by the late 19th century critics. The one who sees the truth in the way a body moves and who experiences the fundamental truths of life in that physical existence in life. Olga pointed us to the, the very early but profound story, Three Deaths, where the final death is that of a tree just making life. And I think that's exactly allowing light for the other trees to grow. And just to amplify what she was implying there, that's exactly what we're getting here. Let it through, let me through, let me pass so that others will have space. It's actually childlike in the way that Tolstoy is always childlike at his best and profound. And actually something is corrected um, his voice. And there's a very distant echo there also of a similar sounding word, prosti, at the beginning of chapter two, when we're told Ivan's life was simple, prosti, ordinary, and horrendous. <laughs> simple, ordinary, and horrendous, which is, which is really fundamental to it. Tolstoy is not pointing to an unusually bad person, just someone who can't take the measure of the appallingness of a life which hasn't yet recognized its place in the ongoingness of everyone else's life, what Olga called the circle of life, which is exactly that, the rising and falling of the wheat and the rising and falling of lives. Yeah, fantastic microanalysis of individual words. I love that. I wanted to ask, though, about you know, zooming out to the, the bigger picture, I suppose. We've got this idea that Tolstoy's relationship with religion is very complicated, that, that he rejects the solutions of organized religion as being bogus, but he thinks in some way, if you want to reconcile yourself to your own death and approach it without fear, the solution is not the Epicurean solution of just only seeing value in particular experiences and thinking, well, I won't suffer, so don't worry about it, but rather in embracing a, a simpler, I suppose, childlike kind of religion that involves, I think the phrase in the confession is living your life, not for yourself, but for all. Mm -hmm. Just this simple, you know, connecting with the rest of humanity, I suppose. I wonder what you think, if we're not religious, if we're approaching this in a secular way, and if we don't believe in a supernatural afterlife, what can we take from this? Can we still find solace in the ending of this book? Or should we think, well, if there's not really an afterlife, then Tolstoy was... was just as wrong as the people he criticizes. I think, you know, I would go back again to Olga's phrase about the circle of life. Hannah Arendt makes a distinction in her book, The Human Condition, between three views of life, one that views life as labor, one that views life as work, and one that views life as the vita activa. Just very, very briefly to say, for her, the worker is something like the craftsman or the builder, and they make objects uh, which will survive themselves and which will stand. The laborer is more like an 
agricultural labor, laborer, and they see the fundamental being in existence as something like mowing, planting. Nothing needs to survive. Nothing needs to be immortal. What is good in the laborer's view of the world, and this I think is very much Tolstoy, is just submerging yourself in the ongoingness in li of life, the planting of the seed and the taking in of the corn, birth and death. So I don't know about Tolstoy in the afterlife. It doesn't seem to me nearly so important. Actually, I think his consolation is being part of life with a capital L, which embraces everyone and fully includes death. And just to capitalize on this, quite a few people who influenced Tolstoy's thought and his philosophy. One of the major persons who kind of was a very important person for Tolstoy was Pascal. And there are similarities in their life. So two stages of departing from the secular world, being involved with religion and then departing to, to monastery. And for, for Tolstoy, it could be his kind of departure from his manner. But anyway, I think Pascal's wager would be very much applicable to Tolstoy and close to his heart, which is if you believe in, in the divine and, and you live your life as a true servant of God, then then it is a it's a winning situation because if it exists, I mean the afterlife, then you win. If it doesn't, mm -hmm. well then you lose nothing. Well, I think Pascal's wager is a terrible argument, so I, I don't want to drag Tolstoy down to that <laughs> level. I was reminded of Samuel Scheffler's book, Death and the Afterlife, which is it's what, one of my favourite books of recent years in philosophy, where Scheffler argues many of us now don't believe in, a, in an afterlife in a, in a supernatural sense, but that's largely because there's a secular version of the afterlife that has come to play more or less the same role, namely the idea of future generations that will assist beyond our own. It's, it's the idea of being connected to future generations and being able to do things that will make their lives better that adds meaning to our own. And if we, if we came to know that there would be no future, that there would be no future generations, that the circle of life was about to come to an end due to an asteroid impact or something, that really would take away a lot of the meaning in our lives. So there's a secular version of the afterlife that is about being connected to the future. Yes, Tolstoy had a very paradoxical, I would say, and complex understanding of religion for himself. Just to start with, he, his rejection of religion was started because he didn't believe in Eucharist at all. He didn't believe in any kind of miracles. So this side was alien to him. And I will say a horrible thing, but that was his thought, because he didn't believe in, in, in resurrection. So which means, which immediately, immediately questions after afterlife. So he had a very peculiar understanding of the divine. For him, Jesus was just a man, a man who explained how to be a good servant of God. And we all have to follow nothing else. So he didn't believe in the divine nature of Jesus either. So you would agree it's a very paradoxical acceptance of faith and religion if you reject all main dogmas of kind of religion. It's fascinating how idiosyncratic he is. And he, he had this whole following, didn't he, of Tolstoyans and was very influential on people like Gandhi. Oh, yes. Martin Luther King. The, the pacifism was an absolutely central part of his version of Christianity and, and huge influence on the tradition of nonviolent protest. I want to take some questions, though, from the, the audience. So here's one. What's the best available translation in terms of the best relation between accuracy and good English? Any views on that? I don't think I can single out any, or because we have several translations by Constance Garnett, by Louise and Alma Maud, by uh, Volkonsky. All of them 
has their own merits. All of them has their weaknesses. But the art of translation is a very difficult art, and it's practically an impossible task to preserve everything. So I think all translations are worth reading because I admire the work of all these translators. Yeah, I've been reading this one by Peter Carson that I enjoyed a lot. I'm no expert, as I said at the beginning, but it seems extremely well put together. And the, the fascinating thing about it is that Carson himself was dying while translating the book and died soon afterwards, and it was published posthumously. So it's extraordinary to think of the translator of the book going through this same process Ivan Ilyich himself in the book is. So some more questions here. What do you think was missing from Ivan Ilyich's life, in your view and in Tolstoy's, and are they different? Thomas, do you, what do you think was missing? So I think, I think it's quite subtle, actually. It's easy to rephrase the book in a simplistic way, as I've seen it done occasionally, as you know, he was preoccupied with the superficial, with card games, and he wanted to have um, power over other people. And all that's true. But I think Tolstoy looks deeper and more sympathetically into what's driving that desire for distraction and for power and why it is that he doesn't want to open himself to a real relationship with his wife. I mean, I think actually Tolstoy would say he wasn't alive in the first place, precisely because death was so threatening to him that he hadn't embraced it. And that's why all the way through the book, death is kind of like, it's disgusting. It's disgusting, actually. And the book you, is called you, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, whereas you might intuitively think it would be called The Life and Death but in a way there no, was no um, life. It's possible actually to take that as a dark joke about, you know, that the whole book is about his life, which was a death and he only lives mm. at the moment of death when he escapes death. So, I mean, I could say much more about this. I think the very short answer as to what was missing in his life was death. That's actually the very, the very short answer, death which would have opened him to a real relationship with other people and therefore would have meant he didn't need to find defenses against reality in distraction and power. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think I also would like to highlight this uh, authentic voice of an inner child that was present and that he let go. He didn't kind of listen to his voice. That's probably also an important mm. point. And just because, Thomas, you mentioned Nabokov. Nabokov mentioned the death of Ivan Ilyich in his lectures on Russian literature. And not only this, well, the ball that you mentioned in your passage, Nabokov picks up this ball and gives it into the hand of Godunov Cherdinsev in the gift. And uh, because the poem of Godunov Cherdinsev is the lost ball and its direct reference and the epigraph to the gift is death is inevitable, which is a direct link to Ivan Ilyich. And I think Nabokov was a very keen person. And because he cast a spotlight on this child's voice on, in this passage, I think it's important. So that's Nabokov's viewpoint. <laughs> Um, so we've seen that in, in, a, in a way Tolstoy thinks that peasants like Gerasim are more in touch with the realities of life and death and also children compared with middle-class adults like Ivan Ilyich. The question is, did Tolstoy believe that women had a more direct and intuitive connection with death and birth? For example, the differences between Kitty and Levin in Anna Karenina. I think that is a, a genuine theme in Anna Karenina 
from what I remember. It doesn't seem to be so visible in Death of Even Ilyich, where the women seem just as clueless as the men. Yeah, I, I think I think I think that's right. I don't I don't know if Olga has any more light to cast on it. He says some terribly misogynistic things in a confession and elsewhere about women not not being likely to engage with the absurdity of death. But just as you say, in Anna Karenina, he does seem to imply that they're actually closer to truth in their continuity with birth and death. The only thing that I can add is there is Tolstoy and Tolstoy after he went through this so-called Arzamas horror, which he experienced in 1869, when for the first time he experienced this horror of death himself. His uh, attitude completely changed. So, so his later works are different from his earlier works. And just to add a bit of a context to this, the first time that Tolstoy attempted to leave his family and to leave his manor, Jasnaya Palana, was precisely in 1884 when he started writing Ivan Ilyich. So the, the quarrels between him and his wife, wife are very much reflected there. So we can't expect any positive attitude to women late <laughs> so there's a, another question now what do panelists make of the fact that the cause of the illness is unclear it correlates with the fall but the fall shouldn't have caused such an illness and death is it absurd for the fall to have led to this there is a sense in which the fact that Ivan Ilyich doesn't know what is going on adds to the absurdity isn't it and the, the absurdity that at the very moment he was kitting out a new house with curtains this would kill him it's one of the really dark sources of humour in the book, I suppose. I mean, there's a chapter about how, first of all, we learn that he can't get on with his wife and that when she's pregnant, she's shouting at him all the time. And he learns very, very efficiently to shut her up and, and shut her out and not listen to her. And then he buries himself in his work. And there's the implication that he puts his love into his work and even his sexual drive into his work. And that's one way of shutting her out and with her all the annoyance of reality. And then in the next chapter, we read that he's kitting out the house. So it's one of those moments when, in the midst of distraction, in the midst of fervent distraction, you know, he's hoist by his own petard, really. I think that's the point, is that, you know, he actually slips while he's in the midst of building this vast edifice to shield himself from death. Yes, and there is a lot also of, um, I entirely agree, a lot of dark humour here because I think there were two professional domains that Tolstoy hated. Well, the judges and uh, and the doctors. Probably only Molière well, hated the doctors in the same way as Tolstoy. So the fact that the doctors can't get it is very typical for Tolstoy to the extent of ridiculousness because we are talking about he actually injured his left side, I, I think. And we are talking about floating kidney and also appendicitis. Appendicitis is on the right. So this is a bit of a contradiction in terms of medical viewpoint. And this the, there is a lot of satirical element, I think, here in Tolstoy's attitude to this profession. If I could make one connection, I know we'll want to move on with a question, but I'd just like to make a connection between that passage in which he slips on the ladder and hurts himself, and that leads to his death, with a passage which might seem completely different in very, very early on, in the first chapter, Ivan's friend Piotr has come to visit the widow. And as he sees the widow, as he sits down on the poof, on the cushion, Piotr remembers when Ivan had been decorating his room and had asked his advice about the pink procreton with the green leaves. And then on the way past the table to sit down on the sofa, the widow snagged the black lace of her black shawl on the carved edge of the table and Piotr rose slightly to disentangle it. 
releasing the poof, which quivered and pushed up at him. And the widow began disentangling the lace herself so that Piotr sat down again, crushing the rebellious poof back into submission. But the widow had not finished disentangling herself. And it's just this almost Marx Brothers scene of bodies tangling up and clothes tangling up. And I just draw attention to this because I think it's the feel of the book, the embarrassment and the encumbrance of existence. Going back to Olga's insight that at the end, Ivan says, finally, I will make space or let space or let me go. Until that moment, he and all the other people in their book, ultimately, how do they experience the world? They experience as something that gets in the way and that they get in the way of. And that it generates this constant sense of life as a muddle and an encumbrance. And just to add to this, because you read this marvelous passage, it is that all of them, in a way, live their, well, to use a cliche, an inauthentic life. So therefore, they are surrounded by the objects, and the objects actually are alive, because in this passage, poof is alive. <laughs> because it reacts and also kind of there are a lot of objects that are presented as alive because all of them are living dead and the objects are dead living. The objects are almost more alive. It's just like itself. Absolutely. Disgustingly, embarrassingly. There's some remark very close to the end that I couldn't quite find where the idea of getting snagged on something appears again and Ivan Ilyich feels as if he's got snagged on, on on his inability to recognize that he'd lived his life in the wrong way. And as soon as he unhooks that, yes. he's off, mm-hmm. off, off into the light. So that amazing scene with the poof then reappears, resurfaces mm. at the very end. So perhaps time for one more question, I think. There's a question, several questions, in fact, about Tolstoy's influences. And one question about, was Spinoza an influence? I don't know. Yeah. There's a question about Asian religion and Buddhist philosophy. Now, that, that really is discussed in the confession, isn't it, along with Schopenhauer? Yes, but because Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer was a Buddhist, essentially, and there is a lot of Buddhist influence in Tolstoy and also Oriental philosophy, Tao and Lao, it's there. And if we can give an example, the best character that reincarnates Lao Tse's uh, philosophy of an action will be Kutuzov in uh, War and Peace. So there is a a lot of Buddhist influence in Tolstoy, uh, even in his kind of religious view, because like Buddha, he understands the suffering of the world and turns to religion. So, yeah, I mean, I would, I saw that question about Buddhism. It's interesting. In in a confession, he goes through what Solomon uh, and the Buddha and Schopenhauer all say about the absurdity of death. I think, um, I think that, you know, Tolstoy was a great reader of Schopenhauer and through Schopenhauer, a lot of Buddhist thought. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that, that emerged in the death of Ivan Ilyich, is that the will is fundamentally corrupt. The will, we are all pinioned. We are all enslaved by a blind willfulness of life. And reason itself is corrupted as an agent of that willfulness. So the short, decisive sentences of Ivan Ilyich are all in some ways mimicking that blindness or that half vision of the will. And I just make a link from that to one of the most interesting things about Tolstoy, which a lot of people don't know, or uninteresting thing about him is not just who influenced him, but who he influenced. Because I don't think most people realize that Tolstoy, not only was he a great novelist, 
but he also gave rise to the doctrine of nonviolence, which shaped some of the most successful social liberatory movements of the 20th century, because Gandhi was directly in dialogue with him on the doctrine of nonviolence shortly before Tolstoy's death. And that's where that comes from. And that is linked to a view that actually you have more strength if you don't exert your will than if you do. And you allow your opponents to demonstrate their own corruption. And that passes from Gandhi on to Martin Luther King. So there's a really interesting through line about the power of abandoning the will. And he extended this to animals as well and was a notable early vegetarian. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much to our audience for joining us. And thanks to our panellists for a fantastic discussion.